Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. The attendees of thousands of churches this Easter morning heard a message like this. Uh, We can't believe in a literal, physical, historical resurrection anymore, but we still have the idea of Easter. Doesn't nature itself teach us that after winter comes spring? That even in disaster and death, there can be new beginnings. But we must have faith that even in our misfortunes, we can discover new life by growing through them. This is the true message of Easter. Thousands of churches founded by Bible-believing people have given way to this kind of message. That it doesn't matter whether these events in the story of Jesus' life actually happened All that matters is that Christians be good, ethical people who love others, oppose injustice, and make the world a better place. This trend in mainline denominations is just one data point in a downhill narrative of depressing news about the influence of Orthodox Christianity today. Here are some others. The non-church-going population in Europe and the United States is steadily increasing. The number of Americans answering no religious preference to poll questions has skyrocketed. A century ago, most U.S. universities shifted from a formally Christian foundation to a secular one. As a result, those with traditional religious beliefs have little foothold in any of the institutions of cultural power. The number of teen girls who identify as trans has exploded. The darkness of despair is closing in. Satan seems to be winning. Sometimes we need a fresh blast of wind to blow away the clouds of doom and darkness. A fresh wind of facts. The rest of this episode is about the fact of the worldwide impact of the headline, He is Risen. for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 17 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Demographers tell us that the churches where the historic fact of the resurrection was not proclaimed this weekend probably weren't very full. The only churches growing in the United States are those with supposedly obsolete views of an infallible Bible and miracles. This truth was painfully confirmed a few years ago by a New York City pastor who was about to retire. He had been in a liberal Manhattan denomination for 40 years. When being prepared for ministry, he was confidently told that the only religion that would survive in the future was the most mild, modern kind that did not believe in the deity of Christ or a literal bodily resurrection. Those proclaiming that view, he lamented, now preside over empty church sanctuaries and dwindling, aging congregations. Ironically, he observed, they can only keep the doors open by renting them out to growing, vibrant churches that believe all the doctrines we were told would soon be obsolete. So, Let's look at the stubborn historic fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a fact that refuses to go away. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, in fact, the Apostle Paul bases Christianity on the reality of the resurrection. He writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. No other religious faith begins, you must believe these certain historic truths. Other religions have origin stories, of course, almost always some kind of an example to emulate. But Christianity is rooted in a historic fact. Christ's death on the cross redeemed Christ's followers from sin's curse, a fact proven by Jesus' bodily resurrection. And as Paul points out, if it didn't happen, we of all men are most to be pitied. So let's look at some of the attempts to deny the historic fact of the resurrection. First, Jesus never died. He somehow was resuscitated in the tomb. Well, a Roman spear was thrust into his side while on the cross, making sure he was dead. If he had resuscitated, he would have had to have torn his way out of the mummy strips, which would have been impossible, but they were found neatly folded. And how could he have rolled the stone away from the inside? Okay, how about the apostles stole the body and the resurrection is a hoax? Ten of the original 11 apostles died for their faith in Christ and his resurrection. You can't explain this many people being persecuted and dying for a lie. Okay, how about the Jewish leaders stole the body? They were trying to stop belief in Christ. If they had his body, they surely would have produced it to stop belief in the resurrection. Okay, fourth, how about one of the leading arguments today, which is that the legends of Jesus' resurrection developed only many decades after the actual events had faded from living memory. Let's make some observations. Number one, legends can't grow during the lifetime of those who know the facts. The summary that we read of what the Christians believed in 1 Corinthians 15 was circulating where Jesus died before Paul cited it, which he did just 20 years after Jesus' death. Secondly, there was nothing in either Greek culture or Jewish culture that would have led anyone to make up or expect an individual resurrection in the middle of history. The Jews who did believe in the resurrection believed only in the resurrection of the righteous at the end of the time. Third, a growing movement of Jews who worshipped a human being as the Son of God was a radical departure from the history of human cultural thought. It was completely unprecedented, and this consensus was there immediately after Jesus' death. There was no debate about this within the early church. How could it have been made up? Fourth, had the resurrection sightings of Jesus been fabricated, the myth would have expected Jesus' resurrection body to look just like Jesus before death, as Lazarus did. 
Yet eyewitness reports showed that there was something about Jesus' resurrected body such that at first people did not recognize him. Mary thought he was the gardener. The travels on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him, nor did the apostles who were fishing. Fifth, the Gospels claim that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. But someone inventing the story would have never had the first witnesses be women because they were not allowed to give evidence in court. Finally, the early belief in the resurrection is not based on one or two individual sightings. A large number of people across a diversity of circumstances testified that they had seen the risen Jesus. One scholar, Peter Williams, gives the list. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500 standing, walking, and always talking. In our own day, the word proof is mostly associated with scientific proof, which is defined as getting the same result when you repeat the experiment under the same conditions. For example, water at sea level boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit every time. But throughout history, guilt leading to even execution could be proven beyond any reasonable doubt by two eyewitnesses. When you look at the eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection recorded in documents proven to be historically reliable, the factual historic resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most well-documented fact in history, and it makes Christianity completely different from every other religion in the world. When it feels like our side is losing it may be well worth taking a historic look at the spread of the kingdom of Christ in history. Let's do that for a few moments. But first, despite the enormous beneficial impact of Christ's kingdom of righteousness spreading across the earth, I would be remiss if I left out the many failures of the church. But here are just some. Aspects of the Crusades, aligning Christianity with the state, anti-Semitism, the Inquisition, attempting to force Protestantism on Roman Catholics militarily, the French Huguenots being slaughtered by Calvinists, colonialist expansionism mixed with mission work, the Salem witchcraft trials, the racism of Southern slave owners, the racism of allowing Jim Crow laws to be passed, the racism of opposing the right of Martin Luther King Jr. to peacefully assemble to proclaim the injustice of segregation against blacks. Our record of failures is there. It should humble us, and it should remind us that spreading the kingdom of Christ is not about spreading our majority culture over the earth, but righteousness over the earth. Nor is it about using the sword which God gives to the state our weapons are prayer and influence, salt, light, and leaven. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable to explain how his kingdom of righteousness grows and spreads. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, 
But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Both parables teach that Christianity cannot but succeed. They describe the small and insignificant beginnings, gradual progress, and final marvelous increase of the kingdom spreading over earth. That is exactly what has happened for 2,000 years. One of the most amazing and significant facts of history is that within five centuries of its birth, Christianity won the professed allegiance of the overwhelming majority of the population of the Roman Empire. The church was expanding eastward as well. By 225, 20 Christian bishoprics were established in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and on the borders of Persia. The history of the spread of Christianity during the Middle Ages presents a mixed picture, significant advances and declines. On the negative side, the explosive military growth of Islam in the 7th and later centuries meant territorial losses for Christianity in the Middle East and Northern Africa, where Sharia law was imposed. In Northern Europe, invasions by the barbarians and Vikings created social upheavals in the dying Roman Empire, and the cultural attainments of Christianity at this time were lower, really, than those in the 4th and 5th centuries. Another downside to Christianity at this time, perhaps the cause of that, was the withdrawal from culture into monasteries by highly committed Christ followers because of the worldliness of the church. On the upside, these monastic teams did bring the gospel to many places. For example, St. Patrick bringing the gospel to Ireland. It was brought to Scotland, France, the Germanic tribes, Poland, and Russia during this time. One of the greatest examples of the transforming power of the gospel is the Vikings. In the 9th and 10th centuries, the Vikings, who were marauding adventurers, terrorized much of the coastline of Europe. The Vikings pillaged, raped, and killed men, women, and even children, systematically putting to the torch what was left of the villages. Their fighting men were called berserkers. They were so fierce in battle that our word berserk comes from them. What changed this horrible scourge of humanity? The Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel managed to penetrate even the Vikings, not without some resistance and not even without some violence on the part of the new converts who didn't know better. Nevertheless, over time, many of the Scandinavians became true Christians, and so the Vikings stopped their terrible raids. In the year 1020, King Olaf made, quote-unquote, old practices illegal, such as blood sacrifices, black magic, leaving infants to die, slavery, and polygamy. In the 1300s, John Wycliffe emerged, translating the scriptures from the Vulgate into Middle English for the ordinary people. Wycliffe had an effect that rippled across Europe. John Huss and others in Prague produced scriptures in Hungarian and Bohemian. In the 1450s, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press and in 1455 completed the Gutenberg Bible. About the same time, Constantinople fell, sending scholars westwards 
clutching their Greek and Hebrew texts to Paris, London, and Rotterdam. It was Erasmus of Rotterdam who produced an edition of the Greek text of the New Testament in 1516. In the 1530s, William Tyndale completed a translation into English using the Greek text compiled by Erasmus. Martin Luther, who posted the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Castle door in 1517, translated the Bible into German. As the gospel spread over the world, many of the world's languages were first set to writing by Christian missionaries who wanted the people to study the Bible for themselves. Jumping ahead to 1934, Cameron Townsend founded Wycliffe, whose most recent report is that 698 languages now have the complete Bible. 1,548 languages have a complete New Testament. 1,138 have some translated portions of the Bible, and right now translation or preparatory work is going on in 2,617 languages in 161 countries. The age of European colonialism brought a mixed bag for the church. Roman Catholicism brought Christianity to Asia and the Americas, but conquistadors imposed Spanish civilization and Catholicism by force in South America. By the 1740s, Moravian missionaries had reached the Virgin Islands, Greenland, Suriname, the Gold Coast, North America, and South America. The evangelical awakenings of the 18th century by the labors of John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards gave tremendous impetus to the development of the world missionary movement. The Baptist Missionary Society, for example, was founded by William Carey, who went to India in 1792, the London Missionary Society in 1795, American mission societies began in 1787, and a student movement at Williams College and Andover Seminary led to the formation of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions in 1810. The result was that the 19th century was called by historian Kenneth Scott Lauderette the Great Century of Christian Missions. The period from 1815 to 1914 witnessed the greatest numerical and geographical expansion of the missionary enterprise of any epoch until that time, including, by the way, the penetration of the most populous nation of the world, China, by Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Has God suddenly stopped this expansion of the gospel over earth? No. Let's think about today. The Bible-believing churches in America are still growing despite the losses of nominal Christians. Despite the secularism of colleges and universities, religious faith is growing in some corners of academia. It is estimated that 10 to 25 percent of all the teachers and professors of philosophy are Orthodox Christians, up from 1 percent just 30 years ago. In the non-Western world, the present growth of Christianity is stunning. For example, last Sunday, there were more Christians attending church in China than there were in all of Christian Europe. In the last 50 years, the number of Christians in East Asia, China, Korea, and Japan, has grown from 11.4 million to 171.1 million. That's 1.2% of the population to 10.5% in 50 years. In 1910, only 12 million people in Africa were Christians. That's about 9% of the population, about a little over 100 years ago. 
Today, there are 630 million, 12 million to 630 million Christians in Africa, almost 50% of the population in 100 years. Last Sunday, each of the nations of Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, and South Africa had more Anglicans in church than there were Anglicans and Episcopalians in all of Britain and the United States combined. I will build my church. Well, what about kingdom impact on the rest of history? Here is just a smattering of snapshots revealing the impact of the spread of Christ's kingdom of righteousness over earth. Before Christianity, it was dangerous to be conceived and born in the ancient world. It was common for infirm babies or unwanted little ones to be taken into the countryside and abandoned to be eaten by wild animals. But when Christianity burst on the scene, the cry went out to bring the children to the church. Foundling homes, orphanages, and nursery homes were started to house the children, and many children were adopted by Christians. In India, prior to the influence of Christ's kingdom of righteousness, widows were voluntarily or involuntarily burned on their husbands' funeral pyres, a grisly practice known as sute. The word itself literally translates good woman, implying that Hindus believed it was a good woman who chose to follow her husband into death. Africa had a practice similar to Sute. The wives and concubines of the chieftain were killed at his death. Such tribal customs were stopped after Christianity began to penetrate the continent. The early church was known for helping the needy. The Roman emperor Julian wrote, It is disgraceful that when no Christian has to beg and the impious Galileans, he means Christians, support their own poor and ours as well, that all men see that our people lack aid from us. George Mueller began several orphanages that were supported by faith. The YMCA and YWCA, founded in 1855, greatly ministered to the whole person, both physically and spiritually, in our urban centers across England and America, although the spiritual emphasis seems to be played down today. Even Santa Claus reflects the impact of Christianity on the world. The real St. Nicholas lived in Myra, M-Y-R-A, in the 4th century, and was reported to have given gifts to children on his feast day, December 6th. It is well known when it comes to science that Blaise Pascal, Johannes Kepler, and Sir Isaac Newton were Orthodox Christians. Less well known is one of the great organizations that helped propel science and technological advance the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge, founded in 1660. Seven of the ten founders were Puritans. And have you ever noticed how many hospitals sound like they were started by Christians? That's because they were. Way back in 325, the Council of Nicaea, which clarified some things about Jesus being fully God, made also a world-changing decree. The bishops of the church were instructed to go into every cathedral city in Christendom and start a hospital. The historic fact is that the mustard seed Jesus planted is growing dynamically. Its best days might even be just ahead. We don't know, but we do know this. 
One day, that kingdom will have grown so much that birds from all over the world will make nests in its branches. So in summer, we saw that throughout the history of the church, it has been easy at any given cultural moment to feel like Christ and his church are losing. This cultural moment feels that way to many. But discouragement is one of Satan's most commonly used ploys. The fact is that the resurrection changes everything. No headline has had a bigger impact in history. Since our race's sinful nature causes mankind to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, many have tried to explain away the resurrection, but no one has succeeded, and more than a few have come to faith in Christ in the process. One of the leading arguments today is that the legends of Jesus' resurrection developed only many decades after the actual events had faded from living memory. But we can date Paul's letter to the church at Corinth as having been written just 20 years after Jesus' death, and the structure of the text in 1 Corinthians makes it clear that verses 3 through 7 had already been circulating in the very place where the resurrection had taken place. Unlike any documents from other religions, this summary of the faith is rooted in historic facts that can be identified by over 500 witnesses, most of whom the document points out are still alive. The resurrection is one of the best documented facts in history. And so is the growth of the mustard seed, the kingdom of God. Not only has it spread over the earth, its influence of retarding evil as salt and light is a fact of history. We are part of a team that is winning. For further purple thought, number one, what arguments against the resurrection have you heard? Which ones are the hardest to refute? What would you say to one who says the story of the resurrection was a legend made up by his followers? See your show notes for additional questions. Next week, our April series completes Worthy of Our Allegiance with the message, Jesus' Enemy his strategy to undermine our allegiance to Jesus. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to let other Christian men know about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by equipping them and inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.